Hello, everyone. I'm Trent Luce. Welcome to another edition of Rural Route to the program where we gather every day at this time. Well, Steve Kunkel, we do it Monday through Friday anyway. And what we do when we gather is continue to address the issues between food producers and food consumers. Boy, am I really screwing up here every Thursday. I've been focused for the last couple of months, since August anyway, to bring you a fabulous female on Thursday. And well, Steve Kunkel, (laughs) you don't qualify. (laughs) <laughs> i'm glad you noticed all <laughs> <laughs> it oh, this it's glaringly apparent <laughs> coming to us from greater shelby county iowa and shelby county has been in the news this week so i thought it was only fitting that i forego my typical fabulous female and we have steve Conk. how you been steve i've been well been well we could use a little rain, but so could everybody else. Yeah, it's just kind of dry most places. And what's interesting is that we we have actually had more than our normal a- annual rainfall this year. Really? In, in my, oh yeah, we're we're above normal by quite a bit. We're but, we're thirteen inches behind during our growing season. So ours didn't come in a proper timing for the growing season. But we had a stint early in the growing season where we got a lot of rain. And we had a stint last week or last month where we got a lot. But I walk you through that because uh, my stock dams, even in 2012, my stock dams were not as low as they are today. Wow. And same way around here. We have have creeks and some small rivers that the old timers have never seen dry. I mean, there's no water running. Yeah. The ponds and everything are very low. And there's no tile lines running. It's the driest <clears throat> going into winter. I'm 64 years old. I've I've never seen it this dry. <laughs> I'm 57. You're 56 or 60 years old. Four. 64. I was wondering in that statement when we become the old timers in the area. <laughs> well, I'm talking about my parents. <laughs> I'm lucky my parents are still alive. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yep. Uh, you missed a free soil meeting in Neely, Nebraska. It, we yes. you add so much to those meetings. I suppose you had something more important to do. Well, it's I set five days away every year, a year in advance, to go deer hunting with family and a few friends. I have a I have a dear friend who's with me actually right now. We've been hunting for forty five years together, and so that's awesome. Um, that, it's my stress relief for the year, so. Yep. Wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You don't have enough stress in your life if you can get rid of it in five days. I'm just saying. <laughs> no, no, but it was it was sure rewarding. <laughs> well, I bring it up and I knew you went deer hunting because, you know, with the faster paced world and everything that's happening, you, you just got to take time to get back to those things that keep you grounded. Yep. Yep. I did let my cell phone in the truck. Because I did have a lot of messages, which I suppose we're going to be talking about here. Yeah, I'm sure your phone was blowing up, to be honest. <laughs> and media around the state, so, yep. Okay, but there is one distinct problem by leaving your phone in the pickup. It It's now how we capture all of these images that we have live on forever. So how did you take pictures out in the wild of that first sighting of the deer and all of those things? Everybody else had one. perfect Uh, what's the deer population in iowa it's really down this year 
um, from we got a couple diseases going on. Um, we found a half a dozen dead deer. I bow hunt. I didn't get out there as much this year as I wanted to. Um, and I found just going in and out of my stand and searching around, I found deer. A lot of guys pheasant hunting. Our pheasant population is really up this year. But when they were hunting CRP ground, found numerous dead deer. So, so pheasant numbers are up and deer are yep, down. Exactly. Yep. And the parties we talked to this week and some of the people in my group have talked to, um, well, one group lady talked to me yesterday, said her son went four days with seven guys and they saw four deer and got one. We, we saw quite a few. We were lucky and actually we were lucky enough that the deer we knocked that we saw and we wanted, we knocked down. So. Our, our year was pretty decent, but the numbers are really down. So uh, I'm spending time on this, Steve, because I, I've just kind of been doing informal polling. And I made the statement that in my travels in the last, which is deer season, obviously, in the last six weeks, throughout this part of the country, to Missouri and Illinois and North Dakota, on down to Oklahoma, the number of dead deer I see along the road is, is the same as always, maybe more it seems like there's a lot and oh, yet okay. if you listen to nebraska the wildlife folks say that the deer population is 10 percent of normal not 10 percent down they claim it's 10 percent of normal i have friends who listen to this program from me west say that they don't even see a deer anymore and i i, I had a friend in alabama through hank vogler he he mentioned, uh, well, he had another issue taking place with a coyote while he was deer hunting, but couldn't find any deer. And I'm just, uh, I wonder what's going on with this because I know chronic wasting disease is an issue and blue tongue yep. and EHD and all these other things. But I just wonder if there isn't something else going on under, under, the, under the cover, so to speak. EHD is what is bad here this year, but we... We're just the opposite of what you're talking about. Well, we don't see deer along the road. Uh, my entire, from October to this weekend, I got to travel about nine, eight, nine miles to my deer stand. And that road, normally there's a ton of accidents from deer. Mm -hmm. I have yet to see a live deer or a dead deer along the road in that entire time. Really? And I went to pick my friend up at the airport in Des Moines um last thursday towards evening and we commented we saw one dead deer from des moines to home and we didn't see anything out in the fields so i know that everything goes through normal cycles there's a cycle effect in everything but this just seems to be a little too widespread for my liking i i think i should investigate a little deeper yeah yep it's a bad deal, actually. Yeah. Aside from all of that, uh, okay. and before we get to uh, the, the real issue of the day, how's the life in Shelby County otherwise from an agricultural standpoint, crop production? Good. I don't know where our crop came from this year with, like I told you, we were down 13. Usually we have 26 inches of rain during the growing season here. And we were just a little over 12 and a half, you know, where I live. But I will say I live on the northern part of Shelby County. I live on a five generation century farm and I was in that pocket that didn't get a lot of rain. Mm -hmm. You go about 12 miles 
south of me. Um, and, and the first, I think around the 6th of August, they had between five and six inches. And I had eight tenths. Huge difference. And they had some of their um, best crops I ever raised. Mine were right at or right or a smidgen below average. Um, but that still was down about, you know, 20, 25% from last year. Last year was one of our best crops ever. But Steve, that, that to me is something that even ag media is not talking about because as I talk to people all throughout the corn belt every year, all summer, I had so many people telling me this is a drought like we've never had before. I'm talking about Indiana, right. Ohio, Illinois. Everybody's like, this is just going to be horrible. And yet when everybody had their combines running in and the, uh, other than areas of Nebraska and the dry land corners, other than the irrigation, the corn crop was just amazing. And it speaks right. to what we've done in soil health, what we've done in genetics, what we've done in precision yep. agriculture. That's a success yep. story of the American farmer. Yep. Yep. It, we were lucky that we had no hardly any subsoil going in to the growing season, but we're actually going in to this winter worse than we did last year because we have no irrigation around here if we get rain our soils are like a sponge below and it can they can hold 10 inches of rain down there and and but we were lucky with the rain we did get we got it timely um if like now i think we're on our fifth week of really no precipitation if that would have happened in august that could have changed thing a lot you know yeah. so you know mother God, God's been good. Um, we were blessed this year for with no more rain we got. Steve Kunkel, my guest, Shelby County, Iowa County Commissioner. When we come back, we won't be able to avoid it any longer. We'll be able to talk about why his <laughs> phone was blowing up on Monday of this week. Back with more Roll Route after this. Let's talk about the National Western. It is coming every day. It gets a day closer, January 6th through January 21. Full details about all of the scheduled activities can be found. Don't forget the mutton busting, big part of the rodeo. All started in Colorado, by the way. January the 6th, the first day you know that there's a bred female sale. That includes video auction animals and animals live on the scene at the National Western. Two discussions, two panel discussions about the future of the beef industry and one major feed, the All-American Beef Battalion Feeding 500. Join us. If you're a veteran, come. We want to say thank you. NationalWestern.com for the whole plethora of activities. Welcome back. Grant Lewis alongside Steve Kunkel joining us from Shelby County, Iowa. If you don't know, Shelby County is like the second county from the west edge. Next, Are you right next to Pottawatomie County? Yeah, Pot County's right below us, right to the south. Oh, there you go. Harrison County is along the Missouri border, and we're east of Harrison County. Got it. Shelby, Iowa is in Shelby County? Yes, it is. Around the southern tip. Right. Yep. Every town with the Dairy Queen, I can tell you exactly where it's at. <laughs> so not to give a play. And I haven't been I have been to Dairy Queen for a while. You, you've joined me before. Um, yep. but we're gonna most of the audience may not remember it or miss, maybe they missed the program. You have a, a great story on why you joined the county commissioners, how long you've been, I believe, if I remember 12 years, and uh you're holding the highest 
important job you can have, you you don't perceive it that you should work your way up to the state capitol or the federal nonsense. Why did no. you join the county commissioners? Why did you decide to run? I want to give back to my community. I was raising my family. My my dad was very involved in the community. Um, I I was on. I served on our school board here for twelve years prior to being a commissioner. But I just like I said before, I live on a five generation century farm, and I want to be a part of the process that makes improvements. And I want my grandkids to look back someday and say, you know. Um, either thank you, Grandpa, or like I told you before, I don't want him with the CO2 pipeline to someday look back and say, what the hell was Grandpa thinking when he allowed all this to happen? Mm -hmm. And you learned about the CO2 pipeline in a fairly unique way for being a county official. Exactly. It was in August of 21. And again, I've lived in this area all my life and the pipeline is proposed to be about a mile west of me. And one of the landowners of that proposed line who have known all my life called me and I could tell when I answered the phone, he was angry. And he said, what the hell's going on with this CO2 pipeline? And I said, Declan, I don't know what you're talking about. And he didn't believe me. And he said, well, I see it as a going on your ground. Um, do I have a say in this blah, blah, blah. And I said, Declan, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, they're going to have a public hearing on it in a couple of weeks. And so then I started doing some more digging. And then we did get a notice right before the meeting to the Board of Supervisors of this public meeting for landowners to make them aware. And I was just flabbergasted because in all my years of being a supervisor, any company any large project that came into our county that wasn't initially a part of our county, they always reach out to the supervisors, not not months, but maybe years in advance, especially a project of this size, saying, hey, hey, here's what we're thinking of doing. Here's what we're thinking of going. How would this affect you? Do you have any concerns? You know, what do your ordinances look like? Do you have setbacks? You know, the, the conversations you have right across the table and yeah. try to work together. And we never had any of that. And I made sure when I went to that public hearing, I was one of the first people when it was question and answer time to stand up there and say, how come we weren't notified? How come we weren't part of this process? And can we do anything about it? And all I got was a shrug of the shoulders. But yet Ducklin was there. And so I wanted him to know that I did not know anything about this in advance. So then from a, a county, I'll, I'll get my terminology right. Because you never know until you, if you don't remember, supervisor or commissioner service supervisor roles, a supervisor. So then, as a group of supervisors, you you took a stand. Yes, we uh, we already had a ordinance in place through our comprehensive plan in the county. It is twenty five years old. Okay, it was put in nineteen ninety eight. That our county back then in 1998 did a great job working with all the cities in the county and we needed to grow and besides economic development growth we also needed housing like most cities do around the midwest mm -hmm. and so to protect that we put in an ordinance that no industrial user which co2 pipeline is industrial 
can build within two miles of any of our city limits unless they come and get a conditional use permit. And we would allow a variance, but you'd have to have good reasons to do that. This pipeline is going within a mile and a half of Shelby, a mile within a mile of Westphalia, and 131 feet from the city of Early. And they paid no attention to our setbacks. And so when we learned of this, we went and revised that ordinance and we set up a CO2 pipeline ordinance that included a thousand foot setback for house and animal confinements for resident, um, a quarter of a mile for uh, parks, recreation, ball fields, and a half a mile for um, hospitals, long-term care facilities, schools um, to protect people. And we did that in November of 22. We were the first county in the state of Iowa to pass such an ordinance. And within a few days after we passed it, um, Summit Carbon Solutions sued us, saying we were being uh, preempted by federal and state law, blah, blah, blah. And what was really discouraging and kind of tells a story, I, I'm a firm believer in people's actions speak way louder than their words. And we had four public hearings on our ordinance. We only needed to have two, but we had four. Mm -hmm. We had over 170 some people speak at those hearings. We had many written comments, all positive about the pipeline. The residents of our county wanted this. The all, neighboring all positive about the ordinance of the pipeline. About the Before, ordinance. Okay. Yep. Summit Carbon Solutions was at, they had a representative at three of those four hearings. They never once stood up and whether they were for it or against it, we kind of knew where, where they would probably be, but they never had any objections to the ordinance. I actually felt good when we approved the ordinance after the fourth reading because they never took a stand on thought something was wrong or, hey, let's talk about this. I mean, that's why you have public hearings. Um, and we did change a few things from the public's comment from when it first started. And so I thought we were all on the same page. And then a few days later, I filed the lawsuit against us. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't work that way here in our county as far as working on problems together. I mean, we don't just go off and on our on our own. We now know because we have acquired access to information on the plume study that your ordinance is exactly what needs to be at play because within a mile and a half of this pipeline, in case of a leak, there's a, a, a tremendous risk. Absolutely. And actually, that thousand feet for residents and animal confinements, I'm finding out, is not enough mm -hmm. for an eight inch line. I mean, that, the one study that was done up in South Dakota that was entered as evidence was 1,850 feet um, for an eight inch, as far as being in the danger zone. And that's funny you say that, Trent, because our ordinance said you know in our thousand feet wasn't something we pulled out of the sky because there wasn't a lot of a lot of data out there at the time right um our board of health did their own research and they gave us the thousand as a starting point and we asked 
the pipeline company to submit their flume modeling. We wanted to know what the blast zone and danger zone is. And once we got that, we would adjust it. We could go down to 500 because we had no idea, or we might go to 1500. We didn't. And they will not give us any information. That's a, a common trend that we're not getting information on the plume study. And, and it's relevant. It's extremely relevant. Oh. And for those that don't know, in Monday night's meeting, Steve Kunkel, I actually shared with folks, and I could tell people didn't know it, that the new technology in the euthanization of turkeys, chickens, and pigs in our processing facilities is CO2. And it exactly. works because it just puts the animals to sleep and then renders them unconscious. That's why these ordinances and conditional use permits need to be at play and why we need to know what the results of the plume studies are. This pipeline is not your everyday pipeline. Second half, Steve Kunkel, just ahead, roll route. Uh, let's talk about beef. Certified Piedmontese creating the opportunity for you as a consumer. Want the beef delivered to your door. You don't have to go to the store. It's the most tender beef you'll ever consume. How do I know that? Because every single animal sired by the Piedmontese sires generates the tenderness aspect of beef. Consumer preference is determined by how tender it is, and you will come back time and time again. Don't forget also that there's more than just beef on the website. If you've not checked it out, check it out today, cpbeef.com. Have it delivered. Speaking of daily consumption, NO2U, nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is something that I start every single morning with. Half the time I take one at night as well. It's all about cardiovascular function. It is a preventative. It gets your nitrate level at the right level so that you're healthy. It's that simple. Details from the science of Dr. Nathan Bryan, no2u.com. Welcome back. We're all route. Trent Luce alongside Steve Kankel. I'm going to scold you now. We've been at this long enough, Steve. When I did it wrong the very first time, you should have said, Trent, you should remember it's Kankel. <laughs> You're fine. You're fine. No, I got to get it right. In fact, we're just going to do the whole thing over. We're going to start all over, Steve. Is that okay? <laughs> uh, no, I have another meeting to go to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had a bit of great news during that break. I uh, okay. stuck my head outside, and I'm still hearing a chorus of cows. So that's fantastic. It, it appears I might not have to rewean my calves today. <laughs> 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 yet yet why did i just say that i know exactly what you're saying that's the stupidest thing i've ever said all right so um i don't think we approached this before we went to the break but you not only got sued once you got sued twice correct yeah after oh uh, see we passed the ordinance in november and then in january the end of january we found found out that the pipeline company was still doing easements with landowners and they're supposed to get a conditional use permit from us. And we found out that we're not doing that through the recordings of the deeds and are the, are the easements. And so we send them notice and told them if they didn't stop doing this, we were going to start fining them according to the ordinance. And a few days after that, they filed an injunction on us. Um, the judge ruled on that injunction in July and she issued a temporary um, order on that. And then this week on Monday, after <laughs> I'm getting to know a lot of 
legal terminology through this process. And after that initial temporary injunction in July, both sides then the attorneys give their summary briefs on how they think what what, what went wrong on our side and how we think we think it should have went and the other side strengthens theirs more or less. And then the judge ruled this Monday that now it's a permanent injunction. I am really surprised at how the media picked up on this, but mm -hmm. they didn't pick up on it so much in July. I didn't get much, much uh, attention there or people asking questions, but to me, it's not a whole lot different we we anticipated this to happen mm -hmm. and the lawsuit itself is going to be heard the 16th and 17th is scheduled for of january that's what's going to dictate really where this goes and the injunction we filed a, a appeal of that in august um to a circuit court uh panel of three judges so we feel we're going to get a lot uh more unbiased ruling there from just one judge. There, There is a difference between your July ruling and the ruling this past week, and that is that counties received a letter from FEMSA, the regulatory agency for the federal government, in between those two rulings. So, uh, and right. First of all, what did, the, did, your, did Shelby County get the letter? And then yeah. tell us what the letter said. Yeah, the letter FEMSA had sent out to the three CEOs of the three companies that were involved. That's the letter you're talking about? Yes. Yep. Telling them that um, they need to work with all three branches of government, with the state and the local governments. And local governments in the past have helped with safety. And it's the pipeline company should be working with us. And they also suggested that they share information and they even mentioned the flu modeling. And they even mentioned how local governments can go about this. And one of it, one of the many they listed was setbacks. And we actually um, added that information to the suit once we did it, but that letter wasn't even mentioned in the ruling that they even read it. I'm sorry. Yeah, how can that be? This is the federal agency, which we all have a concern about the overreach of federal government at every level. Here they've sent a letter to the petitioner saying, hey, make sure you work with the local authorities because federal government is right. not going to supersede that. Right, right. And, and, even, and a federal judge doesn't include that in her thought process? There was no mention of it. No. Uh, yeah. I, we should also just mention, Steve, that uh, Shelby County was not the only county involved in this particular ruling. Story right. County. Story County was also. They they passed an ordinance about the same time. So, yep. And and their ordinance was similar? Yeah, so similar, but it wasn't exactly the same, but it was similar. Mm -hmm. They have like a formula. I know one of the big differences is they have a formula based on pipe size. Um, of what their setbacks should be. And, and I, I do see an advantage to that. Again, and I didn't actually get that understanding myself until you walked us through it 
the ruling, this is not anything you didn't expect. It's a follow-up to a, a July ruling. It's not right. not the one that puts everything in the, in a toilet, so to speak. No, but the pipeline companies are really blowing this up like uh, this was a final ruling. And folks, it's not. You know, here, here's what I see happening, Steve, and I, I love your insight on this. Despite the FEMSA letter, which we just referenced, I see state government even in Iowa, South Dakota, North Dakota, uh, Nebraska, we're just not participating at all yet. We will. There's a movement to erode that county control. And and I was in a meeting well, after our Free Soil Coalition meeting Monday night in Antelope County. I spoke at the county commissioner meeting Tuesday morning. And I gave what I thought was relevant for these this board of three county commit. No, they have five, five county commissioners to hear. And after I finished, I did not like in any way, shape or form what the county attorney told these these commissioners. He, he basically said, you're not the state legislators. You're not the federal government. You're the county commissioners. Well, like, yeah, this document in my pocket says that's where it's all it's at. I just feel that there is a, a very slow-moving eroding, and obviously we can talk about when that actually started, but we're trying to continue this myth that at the county level, you aren't the ultimate authority for the, the citizens of the county. Do you sense that? Yes. Yeah, we're their voice. We're the ones in the trenches. Our residents have to live around these things. Um, I'm there to represent them. Uh, I feel for these landowners, like I said, I'm five generation, I'm a landowner myself. And if you could have been at the Iowa Utility Board hearing, it was for eight weeks and I was up there every week, I wasn't there every day, mm -hmm. but it was heart-wrenching seeing these people, the people up there, these landowners, almost all of them are multi-generational. And I think that's what people were surprised about who do not live on a farm on the multi-generational farmers we have. That's the vast majority in most of our states. And these people can't sleep. They are totally besides themselves, how they've been treated. Um, I mean, we take that unwritten oath when we, when we take over those generational farms, we're going to let it in best shape than what we received it. And this is like going out of their control. You know, it's not about money. Um, and how the pipeline companies can sit there and listen to that and how they can sleep at night and have a conscience is beyond me. We had something happen at the Antelope County, Nebraska meeting Monday night that um, has not happened yet. And I, I, I think there will be a trend. But we had an unprecedented number of people come up afterwards who said, I signed this thing early on. Oh, yeah. Now I regret what I did. I'm trying to figure out how to fix it. Yeah. And those are permanent. They are in Iowa. I'm sure that's way. In oh, yeah. They are permanent easements forever, not the life of the project, which is wrong, in my opinion. And, and you talk about that. I've had many, many landowners who have signed contracts who have reached out to me and said, I sure hope you can not stop the pipeline, 
so much as I hope you can get it in its safe lane. That's what our ordinance is set up to do. And if you do stop it, fine, because one, I did not realize the dangers when I signed it. I really didn't think because I was told counties or really even the state can do anything about it. So it was coming. So I signed it because not because I believe in the project, but because I felt I had no end because they had that trump card in their back pocket of eminent domain. And so at least I could negotiate a little bit up front. Without that eminent domain, there's no way I would have signed. So it's really disturbing when I see the pipeline company say, well, we have 70 or 80 percent support. Um, it's not support um, that they have. It was it was forced upon these people and they had to, you know, farmers deal with risks every day. They had to feel, OK, what do I want to have a little say in this or not? You know, and I've noticed in our county and we're about at 50 percent. The majority of the people who have signed, the majority do not live on that partial where the pipeline is going to go. They're either absentee landowners, they live out of state, they live, they might farm the ground, but or they own the ground, but they live several miles away from it. The ones that are holding out, a lot of them, almost all of them are multi-generational ones, and they live very close to it. I've had many people who farm for absentee landowners who are they they moved to San Francisco. The parents died and they inherited this farm. And so they have a farm manager, whatever the case may be. And I've had many people who farm for that type of person who've contacted me and said, my landowner did an easement. I didn't even know about it. They didn't consult with me. Right. It, it Clearly to them, it looks like a payment for their property. And they don't think about or didn't research what the inherent dangers are. Because the right. one thing that these companies are really doing very successfully is making people believe that the CO2 pipelines, just like all the other gas and oil pipelines we've had, that right. is a blatant lie. Steve Kankel, one more segment. We'll be back with that after this. Well, the Apache crew, particularly the Simpson Farm Enterprise, part of the Apache sprayer crew, was at the Nebraska Farm Show yesterday in Lincoln, Nebraska. They didn't invite me. What's up with that? But they were educating the farmers of the area that stopped by to look at the new series of Apache sprayers and learn that you cannot have these nutrients and water robbed from crop production. That is what, this is like the ultimate law enforcement official. You take a sprayer out there and you precisely eliminate the competition for the food. Weeds and insects are competition. More details at simpsonfarm.com or highplainsapache.com. Welcome back. Trent Luce alongside Steve Kankel joining us from Shelby County, Iowa. And the reason that the uh, the petitioner, in this case, Summit Carbon Solutions, wants to really play this up, and, and what I'm talking about play this up, is the latest ruling, no matter how damaging it truly was for Shelby and Story County, Iowa, it is to set this precedent that we'll come after you and you can't win in court, so don't even try to spend the money. If this is a fear tactic so that other counties, and particularly in, in uh, Iowa, 97 other counties, don't all come together and put these ordinances in place because we'll come and sue you. You can't live in fear, Steve. I know. And 
you all know you're a farmer in any business, you have risks and you have to decide, you know, which risks I'm going to take to the next step. And this is one that I felt if we didn't go all guns in up front, it was going to set a bad precedence. And it would be almost impossible to change down the road once it start. And so that's why we did what we did. We were unanimous. Um, our public, especially if you'd have been in our public hearings, the Keogh community was, was behind us. I haven't had one resident from our county or even around the state. I haven't had one person call me, text me, email me, unless they're a involved with the ethanol plants on the board of an ethanol plant or part of the pipeline as an investor. If you take that away from it, that they don't have a financial interest, I haven't had one person call and say you're doing the wrong thing. Here's what we need to ask That's every ethanol uh, fan, whether you are an investor, whether you are a consumer, if you're a corn grower, whatever the case may be. Why is it that all of these uh, carbon tax credits are investor the investments in that making that happen are the oil companies Exxon Mobil BP why yeah. are the oil companies telling the ethanol plants you need to do this and they're not doing it what right. just just answer that question this is clearly an attack on the ethanol industry they've convinced the corn farmer that if you don't do this you're not going to be in business you can't sell your your ethanol to california steve i go to wisconsin and i'm going to visit with dairies and they're getting this big subsidy to put in a 35 million dollar compressed natural gas line because california has to have this net carbon zero formula in order to make it work no matter what state i go to people are trying to do some project for california i got news for you there's only 38 million people live in california 330 million people don't live in california we don't need to have everything go to california and yet they have found a way to push this through at every level and then when you trace it back to where it comes from it comes from the old companies the ethanol industry is asking itself to bleed out on the table. Plus, e even with this project, does California sign a contract that if we do this, they're guaranteed they're going to they're no. going to do this? Absolutely, no, not. exactly. Plus, I'm going to give you a personal um, example. I have six ethanol plants within 60 miles of me. I sell to two of them. I'm yeah, it's probably 90 percent of my my crop. Okay, of those six. None of none of the six are hooking up to any of the three proposed carbon pipelines. I know a navigator's gone now, but my point is they say the ethanol industry will die. We will not have a market for our corn. In our area alone, these ethanol plants that they're not are hooking up, they've been proactive for some time and have found other sources besides a pipeline to go buried under a rock to, to market a value-added product with CO2. Mm -hmm. And it seems kind of foolish that if this line goes through in Shelby County, I'm going to have to drive like all the other farmers in our area. We'll have to drive over a pipeline to market our, our corn at a plant that doesn't use it. And the other so thing, that, there are other odd options. The other thing that came up at our meeting Monday night in Neely and that was generated by somebody in the audience, <clears throat> and he's spot on. 
Doug said that um, we're talking about a tax credit here. Who takes the advantage of the tax credits? Only the wealthy. And mm -hmm. we now know, the data is very clear, Steve Kankel, that 1% of the global population has equivalent uh, emissions to 66% of us peasants who live on the land and take, just try to make a living taking care of our families. 1% have the equal emissions to the 66%. So ultimately what we're doing is we're creating a tax credit by doing all of this stuff and putting all of our farms and food in peril to benefit the 1% that are the carbon emitters. Who thinks that's a good idea? And the taxpayers are paying for all of it. Exactly. Exactly. And who do you think is paying for us trying to defend ourselves? Taxpayers again. You know, it's just, yeah. I'm glad there's people like you out there that are spreading the word because it feels like the local residents are out there by ourselves where we don't have our state governments not helping us. Of course, the feds are not helping us. It just seems like I can't believe I'm, I live in rural America and this is all happening, especially with the property rights thing. That's a whole nother story. So I've not been involved with this, but many on our team at the Free Soul Coalition have done a very good job getting information to one of the uh, pro uh, presidential candidates, um, actually three presidential candidates have taken a stand against the CO2 pipelines and carbon capture. That would be Ryan Binkley from Texas. Doesn't get much attention. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And uh, Vivek Ramswamy, who last night did a great job po posing this in a very short number of words, how dangerous this boondoggle was. Do you feel like any awareness coming from presidential candidates is going to make a difference? I don't know, but it's not going to hurt. You know, because again, it, we have to broaden the base that's that's working on this because we don't seem like to have our our government behind us. So it's just, and we don't have time to get into all the politics and the and the campaign donations and all that that's going on, but. This thing is so politically motivated. It just, I can't believe um, I'd have ever been involved in trying to fight something like this. Yeah. Well, I got to give it to him. He's had the ability to absorb the information and repeat it very accurately in a short period of time. I did ask him personally why he first learned of this March 1st, and it wasn't until November 15th that he decided to look into it. Ryan Binkley, by the way, has been there from mid-August. So, But here's the thing, and this is still my stand at every level. There's still too many of us sitting back expecting the next president to fix all of our problems. The next president's not going to fix any problems. The next president's probably going to make more problems for us. What we're talking about here, Steve, is the avenue that we have to really fix the problems. And that's what you engaged in, what you signed up for to give back at the county level, at the local level, is the only way we're ultimately going to fix them. Yeah, but we got to have, they have to abide by our ordinances. I mean, the state of Iowa gave county, local governments ordinance control 
as a tool in their toolbox back in the 1950s. The, the two largest tools we have as county supervisors, commissioners in Iowa is home rule and land use and zoning ordinances. And that's why I'm going to be really surprised if they say we're state preempted. We know we're federally not preempted on the land use and zoning because FEMSA says they're not, I mean, they said in their letter, they're not in charge of siting. They're not in charge of setbacks. You need to go to your county commissioners. Iowa has given that control to county supervisors. And if we lose that, ordinances ain't going to mean anything moving forward. And so, I mean, I don't know. It just, it just baffles me that um, something like that could be taken away when we're here to protect what we as a county feel is a priority. Coming on my third full year of spending way too much time on the CO2 pipeline issue and the imminent domain that comes along with it, Steve Kankel, I've determined it actually has nothing to do with CO2. It has to do with government's way of eroding the last bastion of freedom, which is the city or the, excuse me, the county control. And I think that uh, signing land up for perpetuity, giving somebody else the ability to control what you do with your property and eroding what you do at the county level is the game that's at stake here and why we must never tire in fighting for the future generations to exhibit the same freedoms that we have. Can you imagine what would happen if all this does happen and they use eminent domain on you know a non-utility, a non-government need, and they force it on the landowner. And then you there will be a I'm not so much going to say a rupture. There's going to be there, there's going to be an accident happen sometime. Somebody's going to hit that line. I was mm-hmm. in the utility field for 43 years, and I did one calls. It's going to happen sometime. It, mm-hmm. Even even without um, the craftsmanship of the pipeline exploding but could you imagine if that's on your property and there's they do nothing for setbacks and getting it away we have some in our county that are less than 400 feet away from from residents as people die who's going to be responsible when you force that line and whether it's our utility board or the commission utility commission allows that to happen I, I just can't believe, again, that we're in America. Thank you, Steve Kankel, for your continued bravery and support and commitment to the citizens of Shelby County and ultimately the United States citizen. And on this day, which our nation was hit with so much turmoil, December 7th, 1941, we can't even do any of this without the the effort and the sacrifice of the American veterans who've gotten us to this point where we can still have this discussion. Look forward to seeing you again soon, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. We've successfully journeyed down the road, connecting food producers to food consumers. For Steve Kankel and Trent Lewis, both of us reminding you that all roads do lead to a rural route and an undisclosed location in Shelby County, Iowa. And before I let you get away, I want to remind you about Cross Diamond Cattle Company, the female sale of the year. Well, the year's about over, so it's the best one that's coming up. 
450 Red Angus influenced bred females and 250 Red Angus bulls. Details can be found at CrossDiamondCattle.com. That is Sunday, Monday, folks. The sale itself is Monday the 11th. CrossDiamondCattle.com.